So if, uh, if you're visiting with us for the first time this morning, we have been in a very short series, beginning last week, ending next week, in the book of Nehemiah, and our series is entitled Rebuild, Renew, and Restore. I guess that was wrong, wasn't it? I was just seeing if you were paying attention. You see that up there? It's Rebuild, Restore, Renew. Now, we've taken a break from our longer series that we've been in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, in order to spend some time with this book, the book of Nehemiah, because this is a book that is all about a rebuilding project. And right now, together as a church, we are in a rebuilding project. In fact, uh, you could, if you could sum up maybe God's commission to us in the current series that we are in, it would be a commission to rebuild, restore, and renew. We could put it like this, you know, this church has been around for over 130 years. That's a long time, isn't it? And within this church's history, there is a lot of really exciting, good work that has happened. And so there was a time in this church's history where uh, over the course of three services, this church was filled with lots of young adults and young families. Uh, there were so many children in this church at one point that they didn't have enough space for them. They had to excavate down below the sanctuary, and they had to create more space for children. And this church has a, has a great heritage of raising up and sending out leaders, uh, people in the nonprofit world, people to do global mission work, uh, those who have written books and, and, done to all, and plant churches and done all kinds of great work. And so we can look back at our past and we can see a really great heritage, a great history. But we don't want this just to be the story that we tell about our past. We want this to be the story we can tell about our future. We want to be able to look back in years from now and say that this was a season where God used this church to be a faithful presence of his justice and love within this community. He used this church to reach out and to see people who are far from God meet Jesus and have their lives transformed. We'd love to see this church once again be a place that is filled with young adults and young family and children. Amen? And so this is our desire for our future. And yet... If we're going to move from this kind of great past and into this kind of great future, change is necessary. We need to see a rebuilding, a restoring, a renewing of the work of God here at this church. In fact, uh, it's always been the case in the, ch- in the history of the church that whenever there's been new movements, that the church has needed to open itself up for change and for renewal. And so, for example, after the Protestant Reformation, this great movement of God in in church history, after the Protestant Reformation, there were some leaders that coined the phrase semper referendum, which is Latin for reformed and always being reformed. In other words, the church is that community of people that are always open to God changing them and reforming them so that they might engage in a fresh way in the mission and the work of God in the time and place that God sets us in. And this is important for the church to be open to change and renewal and rebuilding because we live in a dynamic culture. Now, I graduated from high school in 1993. And that seems like, to me, a yeah, some of you are shaking your heads, like, seems like just yesterday, doesn't it? What were you doing in 1993? It's interesting, as I think back to my time in high school in the early 90s, it is so different than the kind of experience that many of your children might experience in high school today. 
The culture has shifted fairly dramatically even in the last 20 years. And there have been regular norms regarding sexuality and identity in the family that have been deconstructed. We're increasingly moving into a post-Christian and a secular age, which it means a lot of things, but essentially it means that in our day and age, you know, you think about it, uh, maybe 500 years ago, the average person in the world, would, in, in the West, would think belief in God would be obvious. It was a common assumption. And of course, even in our nation's history, many of the assumptions that Christians today take for granted were also taken for granted back in the day. And it wasn't that people were not following Jesus because they didn't buy into kind of like the authority of the Bible and the existence of God and the need for redemption and for people being sinners. It's just that they didn't really want to conform their lives to the moral standards. And so you kind of need to wake people up and get them into church and get them back on the right track. But today the ground has shifted And people are operating with different assumptions about reality, about the world. I was listening to an interview with a a very well-known pastor and writer and thought leader in New York named Tim Keller. And he was making the point that there, there, there are a large swath of people in America who have what you might call religious dots. And so evangelism for those people is to connect the dots, sin, a need for redemption, you know, the existence of God. He said, but there's a whole nother group of people, a growing population in the U.S. that don't even have the dots. Remember, my wife and I, uh, we have these dear friends that we met in Mexico and talking with them about Christianity, and they just had zero knowledge of Christianity. They grew up in secular Jewish homes, and they had no background at all. They didn't know anything about the Bible except for, um, I mentioned David and Goliath and uh, our friend Nancy, she said, isn't that, I, I, that's familiar to me. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book, didn't he, called Goliath or something like this. You guys remember this book? And this was her familiarity. Her first time ever being in church was at our church um, back in Albuquerque, and then her and her husband have since come to our church a couple times here. And they said that um, they, they actually have kind of, out on our relationship with us, they've started to try out a church in their area, but they said, quote, uh, we like it because it doesn't have that bloody cross right at the center of it. And do you see, the, the difficulty is just with a conceptual framework. They're not growing up with the same assumptions that many of us grew up with. And so we live in a different time and place, of course, for church attendance even. You know, it used to be the case that people would attend church because there was a social pressure to do so. And your mom and your community, you know, they kind of pressured you to go to church and you felt guilty if you didn't. But today, you know, now, now there's just no more social pressure to attend church. And there's many other competitors of, of church attendance for a Sunday morning. You know, you can go golfing or surfing or you can just sleep in or you can do any number of things that might be more appealing to people. And there's no social pressure. And so as we enter into this new age, this new cultural moment, the church has to ask, what kind of building do we need to be doing in order to reach this generation in this cultural moment? And that's the question we're exploring in this little series in Nehemiah. It's the question I want us to talk about this morning. And of course, we're turning to Nehemiah because Nehemiah was engaged in a building project. And he had a cultural moment that he was in, and he had to stir up the people of God to engage in this work. As the story begins back in chapter 1, Nehemiah gets word from his brother, Hanani, that the city of Jerusalem was in 
It was in rubble. It was, the, the walls were broken down. And he is utterly broken by this reality. And so he owns this problem for himself, even though he's 800 years away. And then he prays and he fasts. And after four months of fasting and praying, he enters into the presence of the king. And when he enters into the presence of the king, the king notices that his face looks sad. And he's like, uh, Nehemiah, you're normally a cheerful man. What's wrong, you know? And Nehemiah saw this as his opportunity to approach the king. And he shared with him the problem. The king said, well, hey, we'll help you. He said, I'll send you back to Jerusalem. I'll send you with troops. I'll send you with resources. And you can go rebuild the wall. And so he goes back to Jerusalem. When he gets there, you know, he kind of gets together with all the people. Then in the night, he goes and inspects the problem. And then after inspecting the problem, he goes back to the people the very next day, and he rallies together all the people. And look at what it says to him in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, verse 17. Then he said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. And I might say to you all, you see the trouble we are in how our church has been in decline for some time, you know, and how we have not done a good job in the last season of this church reaching the next generation, and how the culture has shifted and how we need to do new work of rebuilding, restoring, renewing, to see this church engaged as a faithful presence of Christ in this community. He says, you see how we are in Jerusalem. And then verse 18, he says, and I told them how the hand of my God had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And listen to what they say. He says, look, he says, do you see the problem? We need to rise up and build. And look at what the people say. They say, let us rise up and build. I think we should all say that together. Let's rise up and build. He says, do you see, let's let's do this, people. And the people say, yeah, let's do this. And they engage in this building project. And as we look at this story this morning, I just want us to ask these three questions. Number one, As we think about his building project and ours, we want to ask the question, what kind of church do we need to build if we're going to reach this next generation? What kind of church is important to be shaping and forming in this cultural moment? And the second question is, how should we go about building this kind of church? And then finally, we'll see what is the power, what is the strength we need in order to accomplish this work? Now, of course, in Nehemiah, look at, we'll engage first in this first question. What kind of church are we seeking to build in this cultural moment? Now, of course, Nehemiah was building the city of Jerusalem, or the walls in the city of Jerusalem. And in the ancient mindset of, of the Jews, Jerusalem was the city of God. This was the community, the society of God that God was forming together. And of course, in the New Testament, the new community, the new city, the new Jerusalem, as it were, of God is the church. We are the new humanity that God is fashioning together. Jesus said uh, to Peter, he said, on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus is building. He's like the new Nehemiah who left the palace and entered into the rubble so that he might build a new humanity, a new community, the church. And so when we talk about building, we're only talking about joining in the building work of Jesus that he's already engaged in. But as we join with him and as we seek to build a church that is faithfully reaching this generation in this cultural moment, what kind of church should we be seeking to build? Now, 
Over the last, um, I don't know, 30 years or so, the church has been wrestling with that question. What kind of church should we be seeking to build that would reach people in this cultural moment? And there's four basic models of church that have been proposed in answer to that question. And the first model of church that's been proposed in answer to the question, what kind of churches should we build in fashion that are going to reach this next generation in this cultural moment? The first model is what might be called the attractional model. Can you all read that? Isn't that nice? Got such great handwriting. That's why I write myself. I don't just have this typed out for you. But in the attractional model, the problem is that the church is irrelevant. It's boring. It's outdated. You know, we need to do stuff to, you know, kind of stir people up, get their interest in church, show them that it's relevant. And so in response to this problem, people have proposed, let's do church in a way that is more interesting It's done with a higher level of excellence. It is technologically savvy. The pastor is hip or cool or whatever, which you guys have nailed. No, just kidding. Um, But, uh, you know, what are we going to, and then we're going to do sermon series that address felt needs. We're going to, and we're going to really try to build up the Sunday service, make it attractive so that when we're competing with people out golfing or surfing or sleeping in, we'll show them that, man, you should show up to church on a Sunday morning. So the attractional model, and the attractional model is to build a big crowd of people on a Sunday morning. Now, as you look at the ministry of Jesus, you could say that Jesus was the forerunner to the attractional model. Jesus actually built crowds. Uh, He met felt needs. He fed the hungry, and he healed people of their sicknesses. And Jesus was nothing short of a completely fascinating and interesting teacher, He didn't teach, you know, in boring, you know, propositions one after another. Jesus told stories that were colloquial, that touched with people's real lives, and the common people heard him gladly, and crowds came around Jesus. And so, one model of church that's been proposed, they say, look, if we want to reach people, you know, when there's no more social pressure to get people to come to church, we got to show people that it's relevant, and we got to attract people in. Second model of church that's been proposed is not the attractional model, but what has been called the missional model. And what those who propose this model say is that, look, those who are trying to build up their church by attracting people in with better music and better programs and great children's things, you know, and if you really want to have a great church, by the way, the very bottom level thing you need is nice women's restrooms and a great nursery. That's what they say for obvious reasons. Um, But what the missional model says is that that attractional thing, it's reached its life. And actually, if you try to get people to come into church, they said you're going about it the wrong way. What you need to do is you need to go out into the world and you need to get engaged in doing deeds of justice and mercy. And so you need to serve not just on Sunday in a worship service, but you need to do service 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the church needs to be engaged at Pasadena High School, serving breakfast to the teachers. The church needs to be engaged at the Union Rescue Mission, feeding the hungry and serving the poor. The church needs to be engaged as a faithful presence of Christ in their places of employment and in their schools, doing distinctly Christian work in a way that reflects the love of God and the justice bringing rule of God among us. 
And so the missional church says, no, the, the model we need, we need to not get people in, but we need to go out to them. And the missional model actually presses further, and it says we, not just need to, we don't just need to get out into the lives of the people out there, but we need to do a better job understanding the worldview of people around us. Many of us have surrounded ourselves in a Christian bubble, and we find ourselves in an echo chamber of people who mimic our own opinions about the world. And we listen to voices on the radio and on television that say everything we already believe. And we never verge out and enter into how other people look at and experience life. And the missional church says, look, the church has always engaged in mission by understanding the culture that it's trying to reach, by entering into the cultural narratives that the culture tells and by trying to seek to bring the gospel in a new language and in new forms that address people. And the model that the uh, missional church people draw upon, you could say the forerunner for this could be the Apostle Paul on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. He goes out there, and, and now he's not surrounded by Jews who are in the synagogue. Now he's out in, in Athens, you know, at Mars Hill. And he goes out there, and he's like, how am I going to communicate the gospel to all these polytheists? And he looks around, and there's an altar to this God, an altar to that God, an altar to that God, an altar to that God. And then he sees this altar to, a, to an unknown God. You know, they wanted to have all their bases covered. And he says, look, he says, I see you people are very religious, he affirms something that's good about them that he sees going on in their culture. And then he says, and let me tell you about this unknown God. And he begins there and he begins to preach to them about Jesus and the resurrection. And some people listen and are converted and some people mock him and make fun of him. But he's seeking to enter into their world and to communicate the gospel in language and in terms and, and, and stuff that they understand from their own culture, the missional model. So the attractional church says, look, we need to do church better. It needs to be cooler and more tech savvy and hipper and more interesting. The missional people said, we need, to, we need to build communities of justice and mercy and understanding that engage with our culture outside. And then there's a third model that's been proposed. And this is the formational model. And the formational model says, look, the problem isn't so much that people find Christianity irrelevant. The problem in people's lives is that they are lost. I mean, we live in a culture right now, don't you think, that is confusing to say the least. I mean, the old norms regarding family and identity and sexual ethics and ethics in general have been deconstructed. And people are kind of, they're growing up in very broken, fragmented homes. And then people who grow up in broken families oftentimes reproduce the dysfunction in their home in their own families. And then in our culture, we're addicted to technology and to prescription medications, and our lives are just being overwhelmed and overcome by all kinds of stuff, and we're confused and we're lost. And so people in our day and age need luminaries. They need voices of wisdom that teach people how to live. You know, it was John Paul Sartre, the great existentialist philosopher who once said, Everything has been figured out except how to live. And you could say that about our own culture. We've got all kinds of technology, and yet we don't know how to use it properly in a way that's life-giving. And so we've come overcome by it. And so we need luminaries. We need people who know how to practice life. And of course, we find this in Jesus and in his people. You know, I remember Dallas Willard, great leader in the church, 
saying, you know, because a lot of people, you know, when they talk about evangelism, they want to go out and they ask the people the question, if you were to die tonight and you were to stand before God, what would you say to him? He said, but I'd like to go out and ask people, what if you're not going to die tonight? Who's going to teach you how to live? And Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that to the full. And those who propose the formational model, they say, look, the church needs to be a community of character and practice that is learning how to live and walk in the difficult, countercultural, but life-giving way of Jesus. I remember hearing a speaker say a while back, he said, um, what if it were the case that if people, you know, they're kind of like lost in their life, they're like, I really want to learn how to love people better. Like, I want to learn love and joy and patience and gentleness and kindness and goodness and self-control and all this stuff. Like, and where am I going to learn that? I know. I'll go to the church because those people, that's kind of what they're on about. Like, that's what they're all about. I can learn that in this community of people. And so those who propose this model say that the church needs to be a community of character. That's what we need to shape and fashion in our churches. There's a fourth model. We could call this the liturgical model. And they would say that the problem with our culture right now, the problem that we really need to address is that we live in, in, in an increasingly disenchanted world, a flat world where people have kind of lost mystery and wonder and transcendence. I remember reading this quote from uh, Stephen Jay Gold. He kind of captures losing transcendence and wonder. He says this, look, we're here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fish anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures because the earth never entirely froze over during the ice age, because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. Or those articles in Time magazine that say the science of love, and then they want to tell you that the reason why you love your spouse or your children is because of matter and motion. And you say, look, there's something going on more in my relationship with my wife than that Time magazine. I'm sorry. Like there is mystery and wonder. And even in our increasingly secular age, those who, who struggle with belief still find themselves haunted by faith and, and this notion that there must be something more and transcendent. And of course, where do you find transcendence and mystery and wonder? Well, what the liturgical model says, you find it in the gathered community where the transcendent God comes among his people as they practice together the, the historic ancient practices of Christian worship that are compelling and beautiful and interesting, and transcendent, and take us beyond something outside of ourselves. And people there will find something of transcendence. And the model here, the, the, the trailblazer here, might be the churches that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians, where he says, look, I envision a worship service where it is such a unique experience that the outsider who comes in will stand back and say, God is truly among you. So this model says we need to fashion, we need to build communities of wonder and transcendence. And so let me ask you, as we as a community stand on the verge, kind of this precipice of entering into a new season of rebuilding, restoring, and renewing, what kind of church is God calling us to build? 
Is it the attractional, the missional, the formational, the liturgical? Which one is it, class? All, right? What we're aiming for is this sweet spot right in the middle. We want to form communities that, yes, are attractive, that are relevant, that are current, that are now. We want our nursery and our women's restrooms to be nicer than they currently are, gang, right? And we are going to do some work in this space, and we're going to transform this space so that it actually feels more current and relevant, you know? There was a time, you know, when this congregation actually changed this worship space back in, maybe it was, I don't know, the 80s? And at, or maybe the 90s, but at one point, this church changed what the previous generation had done, and the previous generation was unhappy with it, what it had done. Somebody put in these chandeliers and took out the old ones, and I wonder what kind of flack they endured when they put in the new, or they put in this carpet, and they, somebody covered these beautiful floors. I would have given them flack for that, but that's just me. That was supposed to be humorous, get a laugh. <laughs> I felt that felt really awkward and uncomfortable right now. Like maybe I'd said something wrong. I probably did. We can talk afterwards or maybe not. Just send me an email on second thought. But you know, you ever notice, um, and you can see this about your parents when you look at kind of their uh, family history as told in photographs. Almost all of us have, 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 at some point in your parents' life, you can see them. You're like, wow, dad. Wow, mom, you were so cool back then. And you saw them kind of like staying current with different trends. And then at some point in their history, they stopped. And they just settled on one style. And they're like, they're like they, they landed in the 80s. And they're like there, like from now. And they just feel like, this is my thing. I'm not, I'm not going to play this game anymore, you know. And churches can do that. They can kind of land in an era. And, they just feel, and then people walk in, they're like, wow, this feels like the 90s. This feels like the 80s. But the gospel is incarnational, and so the gospel always breaks out among new times and new places, and it, and, it, and it needs to find expression in ways that are fresh and current. And so we want to work toward that end with our design, with our website, with our technology, with our music, and all of that. But we also want to be missional. We want to be engaged in this community as a presence of the justice and love of God. Amen? And then we want to be formational. Like, I believe that if the church can actually, I mean, so many of us, like, our lives look just like the rest of the world. We don't demonstrate any more practical wisdom in our own use of technology, in our own use of our resources. We're overcome with the same materialism, the consumerism, the self-centeredness of our culture. We're overcome with that. And we need to be formed into a community of character and practice. And then, of course, we want to also rediscover a sense of transcendence and wonder and mystery in our corporate gatherings. And we're just sort of taking some steps in that direction, you know, um, with trying to bring into our worship services certain practices that the church has done throughout its history. And so we desire to do all of these things and to do them well, so that like Paul, that by all means we might save some, you know? This was Paul's missionary impulse. And this should be the impulse of our own church. You know, it's interesting. Um, back when we were in Albuquerque, we had some friends on our block that we really connected with. And in some sense, we began with them with sort of, um, I don't know, missional. 
We were seeking to engage on our block just as the faithful presence of Jesus and demonstrate hospitality. By the way, one of the basic ways we can all engage in the missionary work of Jesus is by opening up our homes and our tables to our neighbors. Like that does a world of good for your neighborhood when people are doing that. And so we opened up our, our home, we held a block party, we got to know some neighbors, and we are doing that thing. And I had in my mind kind of this missional thing. And I remember at one point kind of being a little bit down on, you know, well, you know, Sunday mornings is not the main thing. You know, you don't need to do a big production there. But then I invited our friends to church. And when you bring your friends who are unchurched to church, you actually want them to have a good experience, don't you? And if, you, it's, if it's been a very long time since you've invited somebody like who's, um, if you, like I had a friend of mine visit this church a while back and they said, wow, it, it smelled old. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, can we do something about that? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where that smell is found. Nobody was in here. Don't worry. It wasn't any of you. I guess you were in here. It was a Sunday morning, so maybe it was. I don't know. That was a joke. But we want to shape and fashion and form these kind, this kind of church that is liturgical, that is formational, that is missional, and that is attractive. So that God might use us in this cultural moment to reach out to those who are far from him. Now, notice, we'll move on now. That was the kind of church he's building. I know what you're thinking right now. You're like, my goodness, Josh, do you see the time? And you've only got through point one. I get it. But the next point's really quick, and the third one's hardly a point at all. You'll just have to trust me on that. Let's go. Okay, so look back, actually. Notice the way in which Nehemiah goes about the building work. I want you to note first that he goes about it prayerfully. He begins in prayer. He spends four months in prayer. And then as he goes and approaches the king in chapter 2, notice what it says. The king sees him. He's like, what's wrong, Nehemiah? And look what it says. Then the king said to me, Why are, what are you requesting? And he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. I love that verse. Because his prayer is almost like an inhale before he exhales his question to the king. You ever have those prayers that it's not the long prayer beforehand, it's the prayer in the moment as you're engaged in action? Uh, later, he's going to say, um, I prayed to the God of heaven, and we set a guard day and night around the city. And it's because he was engaged in both prayer and action, or you should rather say prayerful action. And oftentimes, churches never get going because they, they can't get off their duff. Like they sit around in, in, in committees talking and talking and talking and talking. You know, like if you're in church leadership, you know how many meetings you go to? Too many is right. That's right. But we, we love to talk and we have a hard time acting. And sometimes we say, oh no, we need to pray and we need to wait on God. And yes, that's true. We need to pray and we need to wait. But there comes a time when you have to move. You say, well, I don't have all the information. You have to move when you don't have all the information. That's what risk, that's what faith, that's what courage is all about, Right? And so you need action and you need prayer and you need prayer that is infused with action and action that's infused with prayer. And this is Nehemiah. And so as we go about this work, we need to act, we need to move, we need to work, we need to do stuff. We're going to, we have been, but we need to pray and pray and pray. I oftentimes find myself in this posture of inhaling and then exhaling, inhaling a prayer and then exhaling action. But he not only goes about it prayerfully, he goes about it strategically. 
Notice, when he comes to Jerusalem, it says he was there three days, verse 11, and then look what it says. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. And I went by night by the valley gates and the dragon gates and the dung gates and all these different gates. And it says, look, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down. Do you see what he's doing? He's actually taking stock of the current reality. And if you've ever been involved in a strategic planning process, you begin with Nehemiah. You begin with a future vision. What's Nehemiah's future vision? It's rebuilt walls. He's like, we got to rebuild these things. We got to have this glory, you know, and, you know, I I like to talk future vision with you all. Like, can you imagine what it would be like to have this facility revitalized and to see our church flooded with young families and young children, like the future vision? But then the first thing that you have to do after identifying the future vision is you need to take a check on the current reality, right? And this is where churches go wrong because they deceive themselves into thinking they're beyond or they're doing things that they're not actually doing. And so we need to have an honest look at ourselves, take honest stock of where we're doing well and where we're really deficient, where there's dysfunction creeping up in our community, and name the dysfunction, name the current reality, inspect it, and then you know, figure out a strategic plan that moves us through kind of the obstacles we identify to move towards the future vision, which, by the way, we're working on this whole process right now. And so he, he, he moves forward prayerfully. Secondly, he moves forward strategically. But thirdly, I want you to see he moves forward collectively. Look at what it says in verse 17 again. He goes to them, and I love this. He gives this speech. Look, you see the, the trouble we are in? how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates buried. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I love the response of the people. Look at it, verse 18 again. They respond and they say, let Nehemiah rise up and build. Wait, is that what it says? No, he says, let who? Us rise. Do you notice the pronoun? That pronoun us is important. It's real important in church work. It's really, really easy in church life to think that change is going to happen when that guy comes and it's going to be on him and then we're going to evaluate whether or not he does it. But listen, the work of rebuilding and restoring and renewing is not left on a pastor or an elder team or whatever. It is left with the people of God. We collectively need to lock arms together and do this thing. Yeah, you need a Nehemiah to come Let's come and say, let's do this, people. And to look at strategy and to set strategy and to kind of like lay things out. But we all need to work collectively together. It's interesting, when you move into chapter 3, the entire chapter is this list of these different families and the different parts in the project that they played. And we need you. We need you if we're going to become this community of practice that's marked by formation and liturgy and mission and is attractive. Like, we need you to work in our children's ministry and work with our worship ministry and and work with our welcome team and and working to, to see us become more attractive. We need you to be a faithful presence of Christ on your street that you live in, opening up your home, doing hospitality, engaging as a faithful presence on your schools and in your vocation and your place of employment. 
seeking to have your own life transformed by Jesus so that you're walking in his way with your family and on your own. And, and, and then working together to engage in deeds of justice and mercy. We need you to open up your homes for our community groups and be leaders of community groups and to get involved in our deacon ministry. Like, we need you all. And you say, but I don't like exactly the way you're doing it. Well, I don't like exactly the way we're doing everything either. Most, and a lot of the things I I don't like, but look, we've got to commit to a line of action and then collectively go, amen? And we need you with this next facility, with this first phase of our facility project to give financially. Like there's a, a portion we can get done because we, we had a big gift that was given and that's great, 50 grand somebody committed, which is brilliant. Like, could you, like what generosity and what gift from you know, an individual? And we can use that for this first phase, but we're gonna, we're gonna need about another 50 grand to kind of cover the whole scope of the work and we need you to participate in this. I shared with you last week that my wife and I, we've committed, we're in, like we're investing money in this project above and beyond our regular giving, and we'd ask you guys to do the same for this first phase, and we'll do that in the future as well with our our second building project, but we need to collectively lock arms and do this thing. And so he moved forward prayerfully and strategically and collectively, and that's what we're going to need to do if we're going to build this kind of church. By the way, I just... I, I forgot my, look, there they are. Just, I've got to show you, it was there, those three points. Um, but let me just close with this. The strength to engage in this kind of work, where did it, it come from? Well, I think, um, whoops, there we go. If you could sort of like go back to this diagram and draw one circle around what needs to capture all of these different kind of models is a deep dependence upon the power of God demonstrated in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. The power to transform the world is in God's action in and through Jesus Christ. He alone is our hope. Jesus is building the church. And so when we participate with him in all of our efforts, all the things we do, I am under no misapprehension to think that my own gifts or abilities or whatever are going to dramatically turn this place around. The work is too big. Our cultural moment is way too beyond me and difficult. Like we need a fresh movement of the power of God breaking out through the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit among us and through us. And so would to God that we'd be a community that gets down on our knees and prays that God would move us forward in that way. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.